Thank you, Dan. Um, I have to say, I think I would have found uh, just the first 13 verses slightly more manageable chunk than the uh, whole chapter, but, but uh, here we are. Um, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you will hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Do you ever look around at other Christians and think, they look like they are doing so much better as a Christian than me? That they look so much godlier, that they're serving so well and in so many ways. They seem to be fighting sin so much better than I am. Well, if you ever feel that, you're not alone. And if you feel that, you may not be right. Because our passage this morning, uh, Mark chapter 11, it certainly has hope and encouragement in it. But it's first and foremost, I think, a warning. A warning from Jesus to his first disciples, to Mark's first hearers, and to us, that not everything that looks leafy is actually fruitful. Not everything that looks leafy is actually fruitful. Like the fig tree that we come across in the middle of this chapter, it's possible to be very leafy, verdant, luscious, abundant in your leafiness, to look great from a distance, but to be rather less impressive when you get a bit closer and examine the branches, when you look for the fruit. We'll see more of that uh, as we uh, go through the passage this morning. But to introduce, um, we, we reach a turning point in Mark's gospel this morning. That, why, that is, I think, why we made the break at the end of November, uh, at the end of Mark 10, to pick up our Mark series here in, in Mark 11. Uh, because we get in Mark 11, Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem. And um, if you're familiar with the narrative of Jesus's life, uh, you'll know that Jesus won't set foot outside Jerusalem again pre-cross. And so he's very close to his death now. And we get a, a clear block of time in our passage this morning. Uh, we, have, we have a first day that um, ends in verse 11. And then, then we have day two, which starts in verse 12 the next day and ends in verse 19 with the evening coming. And then we have a third day that, that starts in verse 20 in the morning. And we're not actually quite sure where that day ends. Um, but, but we've got this block of time. But, but is there anything more than chrono chronology? Chronology, there we go, holding all these events together. Is there anything more than just that they happened one after the other over a few days? Because there seem to be a lot of chops and changes and different scenes and different people across this chapter. What, if anything, holds it all together? Because we start, don't we, with this grand scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem, verses 1 to 11 on day one. And then uh, day two, he, he clears the temple courts of traders, verses 15 to 19. And wrapped around day two, in the morning of day two, in the morning of day three, we have this account of this fig tree that gets cursed in verses 12 to 14. And then in verses um, 20 to 25. And then we get this block of teaching from Jesus in 20 to 25 um, about mountain moving faith. And then on day three, we have these Jewish leaders challenging Jesus's authority in verses 27 to 33. So there's quite a lot going on here, isn't there? Maybe you felt that as we read it. Now, uh, of course, 
This chapter is most of all about Jesus, just as the whole Bible is most of all about Jesus. But I think the particular lens that Mark wants us to look through here at the identity of Jesus is the lens of how Jerusalem, the royal city, city of the king, receives, uh, receives Jesus. How Jerusalem receives Jesus. What the city of Jerusalem does with this messianic, kingly, angry, powerful, authoritative man arriving in their midst. And I think Mark wants us to see how far short the response Jesus receives in Jerusalem falls. And so we have two points this morning um, as we consider what Mark uh, indicates that Jesus does want to receive by way of a welcome. Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated in verses 1 to 11. And he calls us to bow the knee to the one who is looking for faith and fruit in verses 12 to 33. Bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated, 1 to 11, and bow the knee to the one who's looking for faith and fruit, verses 12 to 33. So first, bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated, verses 1 to 11. And we begin the chapter with that Jesus on the approach to Jerusalem. Uh, five verses are taken up, verses two to six, with his instructions and the obedient actions of two disciples as they go and fetch in their as yet unridden cult for him to ride. Maybe Jesus already knew the owner, some writers think, uh, we don't know for sure. But what's clear in these verses is Jesus' absolute command of the situation. He's like a conductor who knows the score in his orchestra perfectly, just waving his baton as he controls the scene. Jesus knows exactly what these two disciples should do and what they will find. And he even prepares them for the challenge he knows that they will receive. Um, as instructed, verse 7, they bring the colt back to Jesus. They throw their cloaks over its back and Jesus gets on. And then verse eight, that the camera pans out of the shot and we see that there's a whole crowd gathered here. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And together with the disciples, this crowd travel into Jerusalem with Jesus, calling out praises to God in the words of and words inspired by the Psalms. Verse nine, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What a scene. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have wanted to be there? I would. No wonder it's called the triumphant entry and gets a day in the church calendar. It's amazing, isn't it? It's glorious. But what exactly is going on here? Isn't it obvious, you say? Surely this is the coming of the king into his kingdom. His holy city. I mean, that's what the heading in my NIV Bible tells me. Well, yes and no. I'm no expert, but I've read a little bit on this passage over the last week or so. And it looks like this is, this is primarily the scene of an arriving pilgrim. I think that's how, that how those who were there and Mark's first readers would have understood what was going on here at its primary level. 
Because Jesus, he would have been one of many pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem at this time of year. And the gathering of crowds all traveling into the city together would have been fairly normal. The singing of psalms, talk of our father David wouldn't have been uncommon. And a moment of enthusiasm, a particular frenzy around one pilgrim whose mission or journey seemed especially prophetic wouldn't have been unheard of. And surely, if this was an outright, bold, public statement that couldn't be denied of Jesus' kingly messiahship, wouldn't he have been arrested by the Roman authorities? I mean, he wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. Now, of course, this scene is messianic. Of course it is. Jesus surely is setting himself up to fulfill Zachariah's prophecy of a king who come riding on a colt. Although notice, Mark doesn't quote it like the other gospel writers. And surely the spreading of cloaks too brings back memories of King Jehu's uh, inauguration in Two Kings. And the praises, the crowd cry, although they're primarily pilgrim songs, they definitely have messianic undertones too. But what's most striking, I think, in Mark's account is what happens next. We have this glorious scene of the pilgrim crowd descending upon Jerusalem, hailing Jesus, riding on a donkey. And then we have verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Think uh, think of Joe Biden, president-elect of the USA, on his first trip to London next year, trumpeted by the media, heralded by the TV crowds, social media, the newspapers, hordes gathered at JFK to see him off and at Heathrow to see him land. He gets in the royal car, he's driven to London, but the mall is deserted. The adoring crowds don't seem to be there. The Queen isn't home. And it's the same story when it gets to Downing Street, Parliament Square. And so Joe and his team quietly head out of the city. What's the climax of Jesus' glorious entry into Jerusalem? Of those adoring crowds, the cries of praise, messianic illusions, Nothing. The total anticlimax here in verse 11. Jesus enters as a messianic king and he's greeted as a nobody. He enters as a messianic king and he's greeted as a nobody. The praise of the crowds turns out to be empty, short lived. The party's over. No one's interested in sticking around to see what happens next. So what do we see here? What lacks in this response? Well, I think Mark is calling us to bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated. Now, of course, Jesus is to be celebrated. We can and we should sing songs of praise to him, using the words of Psalm 118, like they do here or any of the other psalms. Um, But if we only sing to and celebrate him, I wonder what we miss. 
Because isn't it interesting that this extraordinary worship scene ends with empty pews? Jesus comes to speak God's word, he said in Mark 1, verse 38. But no one's there to listen. Jesus comes to speak God's word, but no one's there to listen. And I wonder, do we see that attitude to Jesus too? We certainly see it this time of year. Friends, family, colleagues, neighbours who come to a carol service but don't want to come to church at other times of year. We love the lights, the ambience, the atmosphere, the activity, the refreshments, but not the message. All of couples who want to get married in the church but won't set foot inside it once the wedding day is done. But I think we see this attitude in ourselves too. Following Jesus is great when we're all together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, singing, praying, praising his name with one voice. What a wonderful thing that is to do. But we're not so interested in following Jesus when it means making a choice to put someone else first who we'd rather not make. Or when we'd rather give our attention to our phones than to our Bibles, all the people around us. Or when it's warm and cosy in bed or on the sofa, and it's dark and cold downstairs or outside. Or when we feel the sting of jealousy, the prick of temptation, the pain of ruined pride, the hopelessness of suffering. We just want to give in and wallow in our sin. And I've been thinking, as I prepared this passage, and in a sense, now maybe it's not really the right time to make this application with so many of our Christmas plans having been cancelled, now being in tier four with COVID cases on the rise. But nevertheless, I just wonder whether there's an application here to our attitude to corporate worship. I've spoken to a number of people, and I know it's the case in every church across the country, not just ours, but I've spoken to a number of people who've who's spoken of that, that great Sunday morning, just a few months away, it's, it's always just a few months away, when we'll all be gathered together as a church again, lifting one voice together again, singing together again. And of course, I long for that day too. We all do. But I wonder, how long are we willing to wait? How long will we allow ourselves to call watching YouTube services on our TVs, church? or listening to a Sovereign Grace playlist on YouTube as worship, or posting in WhatsApp conversations as fellowship. Hasn't God got so much in store for us as we meet as a church to worship him? Doesn't worship mean so much more than Zoom, than YouTube, than WhatsApp? And of course, we long to be together fully, and normally our whole church in one room, no longer standing two metres apart, with masks off, singing, talking, showing food and drink, watching our children play together. And now might not be the time to consider coming to our in-person services if you haven't already. But I can't help thinking, as we head into spring, as cases hopefully start to go down again, as the vaccine begins to be walled out, I can't help thinking, 
that a time will come when we should ask whether we're reluctant to meet together because we can't bear to be without the celebration. Because we only really want church when there's the noise, the hustle and bustle, the singing, the chatting, the crash. And we can't quite bring ourselves to face that, that 20 people, if that, all stood socially distanced, humming rather than singing, leaving straight after the service. It's still God's people gathered together to listen to God speak. For the writer of the Hebrews didn't say, don't give up meeting together, unless you can't sit next to each other, drink coffee, sing, or send your children out. He just wrote, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. One to two over, perhaps, as the winter drags on, and as we head into spring. So Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated. He's to be listened to, followed, and obeyed. Let's move on now uh, to our second point. Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who is looking for faith and fruit. Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who is looking for faith and fruit. Verses 12 to the end. We have here and the astonishing scene of Jesus clearing the temple of traders in verses 15 to 19. And it's sandwiched between this cursing of a fig tree, verses 12 to 14 and 20 to 25. And um, as ever with Mark, as we know from uh, back in last autumn, um, when we see a sandwich like this, one thing put in the middle of two repeated things, we know that the repeated thing on the outside is there to tell us something about what's on the inside. And let's see if we can work out what, as we read the verses together. Um, why don't you follow with me as I read from verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What a strange little scene. Poor fig tree, who you might be thinking. It wasn't even the season for figs. How could it be expected to have any fruit? And yet Jesus' condemnation is clear. And the results of his curse are plain. Verse 21. What's going on here? Well, surely this is an enacted parable. A parable acted out in the flesh. A parable of a people who are full of leaves, but bear no fruit. So Jesus, feeling hungry, heads over to this fig tree in full bloom, looking all leafy. But instead of seeing the little buds, the not yet ripe figs that ought to have been there at this time of year, he finds what? Verse 13, nothing, nothing but leaves. You can imagine him searching through the leaves, hunting, looking for some signs of fruit, even just the smallest, least ripe of buds, but finding nothing. Isn't that a crushing indictment of the state of the Jewish people's faith? For will he not find the same a few verses later 
when he goes to the temple in Jerusalem. He'll see leafiness. He'll see the temple thronging with people, animals, activity. But behind the bustle, nothing. Emptiness. Just like the empty praise of that pilgrim crowd earlier. And so we read from verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, there's plenty of action in this temple. There's lots going on. It's a far cry from the many old church buildings in our country that were standing empty long before COVID. The problem is that it's not the right kind of action. Where the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time had built up this elaborate temple system in which visiting pilgrims could change their money into the right currency so they could buy the right sacrifices to offer to the Lord. Or Jesus wanted to see what? Verse 17. Prayer. Prayer is what he wanted to see happening in God's house. Not justified money making. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so this temple system, these Jewish leaders, perhaps even the whole Jewish people at this time, were no better than the cursed fig tree in Jesus' eyes, full of leaves, but empty of fruit. All show no substance. Their holiness a sham. And so Jesus clears the temple of them. Again, shocking. Although again, perhaps the failure of the Roman authorities to come and arrest Jesus then and there suggests perhaps it wasn't quite as extensive as revolutionary as we might assume. You see, Jesus has no interest in the faith demonstrated in this temple system. He was looking for real faith and for fruit. As he went on to teach his disciples in verses 20 to 25, he was looking for real faith and for fruit. And it's a bit hard to see the link, isn't it, as we move on, between um, Peter's comment in verse 21, the following morning, when they come to this fig tree again, and Jesus' response and the teaching in verses 22 to 25. Peter, verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus, verse 22, have faith in God, truly I tell you, and so on. And now I think, and I say this somewhat tentatively, I think that Peter is surprised that what Jesus said to the tree had resulted in action, that the tree had withered. I, th I think that's what the link is here. And I think in Jesus' response, let me read it again from verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, 
it will be done for them. I think Jesus is speaking figuratively and boldly to encourage his disciples that when they speak in faithful prayer, extraordinary things will happen too. As Jesus can literally wither a tree, so they can figuratively move a mountain, perhaps even literally. But, but maybe there's a sting in these verses for you. Maybe you've been rebuked in the past for not having enough faith when you've prayed, or you felt beaten down by your own lack of faith when God hasn't given you what you've prayed for. Or maybe the sting is simply that you've been worn down by years of fervent, faithful prayers for good things going unanswered, relief from suffering and trials, a spouse, children, the conversion of loved ones. Well, I found John Piper particularly helpful on verses 23 and 24. Very briefly, uh, he goes to 1 John 5, verse 14. Uh, and he demonstrates that the uh, whatever in verse 24 doesn't necessarily mean absolutely anything. It's, um, it's a bit more contextualised than that. Um, let me just read 1 John 5, verse 14. Now, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that anything is the same word as the whatever. And then Piper gives the example, which I found really helpful. Um, if you offered me a meal... And I said, I'm happy to have whatever you had in. I'm happy to have anything. You probably wouldn't take that as a license to serve me a shoe on a plate to eat. So whatever probably doesn't mean absolutely anything in verse 24. And Piper also notes that we can only be confident that God will do what he has said he will definitely do. And there are important conversations to be had about whether and how God speaks to us and guides us. Uh, beyond the words of the Bible, or, or how we interpret the words of the Bible for ourselves personally. But hopefully, even if our views are a little bit different on some of those areas, hopefully we can all agree that we only want to take as absolutely certain those promises in the Bible that are clearly made to all Christians. That he will supply all our needs if we seek first his kingdom. Matthew 6, verse 33. That he's working good in all things for his people. Romans 8, verse 28. That nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. And there are many more. If we ask God for those things, the things he promises his people in his word, then we can be certain of his response. For isn't Jesus' point here in Mark 11? The prayers of faith are far, far more powerful than these disciples might think. Powerful enough to move mountains. There is so much more that these disciples, that we can pray with confidence that God will answer. And the effectiveness of our prayers, well, it doesn't, doesn't rest on the quality or the amount of our faith. If we have faith, and if we come to God as forgiven sinners, verse 25, then the effectiveness of our prayers rests on the strength of God's extraordinary power. There is no other limit. His sovereign will is the only limiting factor 
on our prayers. What a relief that is. If you, like me, are a much weaker prayer than you would like to be. What an encouragement this is to us in our prayers and their value and their power. Of course, there will be things we pray for that we just don't know whether it's within God's will. that We don't know whether he will answer as we wish. The uh, husband or wife that we want to find, the children we hope to have, the person we want to become a Christian, the suffering that we want to end. But there is so much that we can pray for, that we do pray for, that God can, does and will answer. And I wonder, do we notice? Do we remember? Or uh, like the person who was given the wrong gifts for Christmas, do we fail to see the wonderful good things God has given us and has done? Because we're just so fixated upon the things we lack. As we learn in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching on prayer there, that when we come to God in prayer, We're not speaking into the intercom, hoping that someone can hear. We're not writing to Santa or to our MP, unsure of whether anyone will even read what we've written. We're not asking our boss again futilely for a pay rise, for a reduction in our hours. There's no option to leave a voicemail with God because he's busy. When we come to God in prayer, we come as children coming to their father who loves to give them good gifts. We come as children, coming to their father, who loves to give them good gifts. And so we can pray with joy, with confidence, with faith that he will give. We can pray knowing that he can move mountains to bless us, love us, and keep his promises to us. But maybe you're um, not sure what to ask confidently for. Uh, You're so used to praying for things that that we can't know for sure whether he will give us. You don't actually know what you can ask for with confidence. Well, why don't you take some time to um, chat through with a friend, your spouse, a housemate, Or simply take some time yourself to study the Bible and find promises of God that he makes to all Christians, to his people, that you can treasure and pray and ask for. There's more than you might think. And there's a second application here, I think, as well. As Jesus looked upon the Jewish leaders and the temple worship and saw only busyness, activity, outward energy, all leaves no fruit I think we must ask are we cultivating fruit what does Jesus see when he looks at us well what what fruit does he want to see what what fruit should we be growing well of course prayers of faith from this chapter but I think think we can go elsewhere in the bible to see that what this fruit looks like and the obvious place to go is Galatians 5 verse 22 the fruit of the spirit and the growth of a godly character which looks more like Jesus and less like the world around us uh, but also we get the language of fruit in the uh, the good works that he's given us uh, to bear fruit by doing in Colossians 1 verse 10 
or James in chapter 3, verse 17, uses the fruitfulness uh, to describe the mercifulness, the peacefulness, the purity, the submissiveness that we should be showing. Uh, And Paul uses the word fruit in Philippians 4, verses 17, to refer to the fruitful financial giving of the church. Does God see fruit when he looks at us? But the wonderful thing about this fruit is that we don't grow it. This, this isn't a, uh, a muster up some stamina and do better sermon. Such a sermon would have no place in a Christian church. No, growing faith and fruit is entirely a work of God by his spirit in us, his people. Think of what Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Our faith is a gift from God, not a work of our own doing. And think of what Jesus says in John 15, teaching his disciples. We are merely the branches. He is the true vine. The only way we're going to grow fruit is by remaining in him. Our fruit is a gift from God. It's not a work of our own doing. We're about as good at growing our own fruit as this mug is at creating the sorry, this glass is at creating the water that will fill it. And so this is not a call from Jesus to, uh, to muster up stats and stamina and do better, to prove to God that we're better than those first century Jewish leaders. This is a call to get on our knees and repent of our empty actions and to watch and enjoy as he, by his spirit, grows faith and fruit within us. Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who isn't just to be celebrated. And Mark calls us to bow the knee to the one who is looking for faith and fruit. The final few verses of our passage today and kind of key up the explosive confrontations that will dominate chapter 12 between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Uh, they come to him with a question about where he gets his authority from, verse 28. He throws it back at them, verse 30, asking them where John got his authority to baptise from. They refuse to answer and their silence says it all. But we'll see more of that uh, as we look at chapter 12 next week, um, I think for today. We need to finish there, so let me pray. Father, thank you for what we see in Mark's Gospel, and in chapter chapter 11 in particular, of who Jesus is. We pray that you will grow faith and fruit in us and teach us to bow the knee and give him the honour, the worship, the obedience that he is due. And we thank you so much that we can only do that by your grace and your mercy to us and your work within us. Amen.